said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Barent Neustraten. When divinity and humanity meet, the story is from the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John is about one thing. Jesus is God. I love the story that will come to us, which gives us the very evidence that Jesus indeed is God. The 11th chapter, a man by the name of uh, J.C. Ryle, yes, he was, in, uh, he was actually the first bishop of, of Liverpool in England. Uh, he was an Anglican, evangelical Anglican, and he made a particular study of this chapter, and he puts it in a very beautiful, succinct language. For grandeur and simplicity, for pathos and solemnity, pathos is the mobilization of all the emotions. Nothing was ever written like this. Chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, truly is it. It's a coming together of the humanity of Christ and his deity. And it's just beautiful. It's just so encouraging. There are seven recorded miracles in the book of John. Now, he does say that if everything what Jesus did and say was recorded, the world couldn't contain all the books. But the main seven, it seems to be like the seven miracles I'm going to line out for you here. It, it means there is a culmination. It gets bigger and better every time. So we start with the, the turning the, the water into wine there at the, the wedding of Canaan. You understand and remember that one. The healing of the nobleman's son. There's something interesting here. The nobleman comes to Jesus and he's pleading for his son and for the life of his son. And Jesus heals uh, by remote control, if you like, for the lack of a better word. He heals here. Uh, not, in fact, in the 11th chapter, it, that possibility is absent, which is rather fascinating, but will be explained. And then we have the restoration of the paralytic in Bethesda, Bethesda, which is the house of mercy, and he, the man is 38 years, he's a paralytic. Then we have the feeding of the 5,000, well, 5,000 men. Take women and children, 10,000 of them. Uh, you know, it's, it's a marvelous thing. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then he, he gives the bread and he, he, provides, <laughs> he provides dinner. It's a marvelous what he did. Uh, it, nobody would ever again say that, that it was a physical reality that physically occurred. Because you couldn't write this. You couldn't claim this if it were not true. Walking on the lake, that means the lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee, which really means... Uh, walking on water and then giving sight to a blind man and this blind man this blind man uh, he was blind from birth you recall that from the 10th chapter giving sight to the blind man that is remarkable and then you get the resurrection of a man of a dead man uh, but here he has been uh, he's been dead for four days and that makes all the difference let me right from the onset tell you that 
in the, it's not biblical, but in the, the Jewish concept, the soul was independent of the body, whereas it shouldn't have been, because the doctrine of the Bible is crystal clear about that. The body and the, 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 the life force create what the Hebrew would say, an chayam, that is a, a living soul. But there was a perception from Greek thinking that the soul would hang around the body after deceased, and it would hang around up to the fourth day. After the fourth day, it would leave. Because if the, bo the body was not resuscitated, the decomposition would have uh, integrated itself far too much for that possibility. And so, in the story of Lazarus, fundamental is the concept that Jesus delayed his coming, as you will see. And by allowing it being the fourth day, he established that he is the creator and that he is God and he works through the powers of God, the evidence was absolutely, absolutely there. There was one little miracle that I almost forget, but that happened in the dark. Remember the one who lost his ear? Peter hacked it off, his fault, yeah. He put it back in the dark, nobody saw much, but anyway. The death of Lazarus, in the Hebrew, let's say, means uh, whom God helps. Uh, the transliteration is Eliezer. Now, a certain man was sick. Notice, his name was Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany was a little place just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And uh, this Lazarus, there's two Lazaruses in the New Testament. This one and the other one is a fictitious one, which I will come to in a minute, which I will come to. That has a bearing there. And so the story goes like this, the town of Mary and uh, his sister Martha, and it was Mary, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil. Now that happens in the next chapter, chapter 12. It's interesting, now John assumes that you already read the story in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, because he wrote his one so much later. But the 11th chapter, the raising of Lazarus, is only recorded in the Gospel of John. Uh, she wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the man is sick and it looks serious, and therefore his sister sent to him, they sent for Jesus. Now Jesus, you might recall from chapter 10, he is just moved to the other side of the Jordan. He's about 40 kilometers away. So it's not terribly far, but it's a day's walk. I just want you to get the picture in the background here. Jesus has gone away because they were trying to stone him. They were trying to kill him who the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, they hated him. Without cause, absolutely, totally hated him. And so, uh, he stayed out of their way. But now he gets the message, and the message says this, Behold whom you love, and the, 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 the Greek word, because the New Testament comes to us in the Greek, philio means a brotherly love. There is a relationship. The story about chapter 11 in the Gospel of John is about God having a relationship, Jesus having a relationship with people, and how important it was to him. It's very, very important that we see that. The interesting thing is when they come to Jesus, they're not asking for a cure by remote control, like the nobleman's son, like the centurion's slave. It's not asked. Nothing is asked. He is just informed, and they trust Jesus will do whatever is right. And of course, as we know, he did.
So when Jesus heard that, note the reaction. He said, and it's quite a thing to say, his sickness is not unto death, but note this, for the glory of God. Now you remember the blind man who was blind and the disciples said, who has sinned, the, the man himself or his parents? And Jesus says, no, it's to the glory of God, neither have. It's to the glory of God. Here we have a situation, it is to the glory of God. It is not unto death, that's what he said. That the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus is not looking for glory for him, he is looking for glory for his Father who sent him. The problem is they wouldn't accept that he was sent by God, that he represented God, and of course let alone his kinship to God. Now Jesus loved Martha and the sister and Lazarus, and here we have the word akape, which is really a, uh, what shall I say, a respectful love, a, a principled love. Love is a principle, it's not just an emotion, though it has emotions. But the foundation of love is a principle. So it's an esteem, holding someone in esteem. Both forms are observed here in his relationship to that little family. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. He was not in a hurry. On the other side of the River Jordan, in the place where he was. And here we have a matter of perfect timing. You will have to always give God credit for one thing. Perfect timing. Always. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea. So that's the other side of the River Jordan, 40 k's away. And the disciples said to him, they said to him, uh, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to kill you. I told you about this. It's recorded in the end of chapter 10. Uh, you're looking for trouble? Why are you going there? And then Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? It's a strange saying, but it has a meaning here that's important to all of us. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. Because why? You have the light. Because the light of this world is there. But if anyone walks in the night, that is a different story. He stumbles because there is no light. What Jesus is saying, when God leads you and he directs you, you are walking in the light. You walk with Jesus, you walk in the light. And he determines the time frames as he did in the lives, certainly not in the life of Jesus. Now these things he said, after he said them, this to them, our friend, so it was, Lazarus was their friend. They were, the disciples knew him well. Our friend Lazarus sleeps, which is something, an expression, a euphemism that we use for death. Now they didn't get that. He said, I'll go that I might wake him up. Now he already knows he is going to bring him back to life. Then his disciples said to him, Lord, and you know the story, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, uh, but they thought he was speaking about uh, a proper a real sleep, and they thought, obviously, he will do well, he will recover. And then Jesus says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. How did he know that? See, the messenger came and said, he's sick. But here you have evidence, because by the time we get to Lazarus, 
Indeed, he had died at the point of time that Jesus said this. And I am glad for your sakes, he says, that I wasn't there, that you may believe. They believed in Jesus, but here, and so do we, as we are seated here. Uh, if I ask you to raise your hand, if any one of you didn't believe in Jesus, come and see me anyway afterwards, don't raise your hand. It's not a matter of evidence. But why should we here this morning in 2021, why should we bother even looking at a story that has happened almost 2,000 years ago, where a dead man walks out of the grave? What's the big deal? Enormous. Enormous. You can believe in Jesus, that he is God, and still have difficulty believing in the resurrection. You do. It's easy because it can be so overwhelming. Nevertheless, let us go to him. That's what he says. And I love Thomas. He's, he's good company. Thomas says, Thomas says, who's called the twin Didymus, that's the Greek word for it, said to his fellow disciples, I like this, let us go, let us go so that we might die with him. He's a pessimist, but he's a very brave pessimist. He's willing to go and die with him. He's not saying, oh, let's get out of here and get, you know. No, 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 no. He's, he's willing to do that. The state of the dead. There's something remarkable about our particular denomination. The way we uphold the correct doctrine of the state of the dead is marvelous. You should be able to quote these texts that I'm going to just take you through. And I want you, and if you can make notes or if you ever want a, a copy of what I present here to you, I'm so happy to give it to you. If only you learn where to find in scripture the proper education, reality, and explanation about the state of the dead. Very important. Let's, let's go through them. Let's just go through them. Death is a state of unconsciousness, and we know that. The dead know not what? Anything. Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon in, towards the end of his life. Death is a rest from all outward activities of life. We know that. There is no work, no device, no knowledge, no wisdom in the grave. Again, it comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Death renders conscious thought impossible. His breath goes forth, his thoughts perish, and you get that from David, Psalm 146. Death continues until one is awakened. We know that. So man lies down until the heavens be no more. That is when Jesus returns. Death, no association in the activities of those who are alive. Neither have they any more uh, apportioned for anything that is done under the sun. I was taking the funeral, what was it, Good Friday. I didn't know the deceased, I didn't know anybody there, I was just got a phone call, I was just asked to, to be there to officiate because the parents of the deceased were practicing SDA members in Bangladesh and they very much were hoping that uh, you know, SDA pastor could do the, the honors. 
And so you have the eulogy, you have, uh, you have all the nice things that people say about you when you die, you see. They always, always amazed. Never hear a bad word. And then, and then the, one of the speakers that wanted to say, and this is an expression of grief, so-and-so, his name, he's looking down on us and he's smiling. I felt like saying, no, he's not. He's in that coffin there. He's not seeing anything. No, serious. I know it's comforting, but is it true? And the answer is no. And then a few other things that they said. And then you feel like having a Bible study. I did say what the deceased used to believe, and I don't know anything about him. I certainly did honor the parents by honoring their belief nicely, but told them anyway. It was one of those opportunities. But it's amazing. Death renders inoperative the emotions of the soul, no doubt about it. Their love, their hatred, and their envy is now perished. Death comes normally and inevitably to all of us unless Jesus returns. The living know that they shall die. Death causes all praise of God to cease. And you find that in the 115th Psalm, you find in that Isaiah 38 verse 18, the dead praise not the Lord. We know that. We know that. Death leads to a reversal of created organic life, be it animated or inanimated. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God, that is the Ruach, that is the breath of life, will return to God who gave it. And we find that again in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a Pope here, Leo, and it's not often I quote the Popes, but I'll quote him here, Leo X. And I quote him because he was so wrong in what he said. That is a an, an, an statement which is almost like an ex-cathedral statement on faith and beliefs of the Catholic Church. Now, I just take an excerpt because the whole statement is so much longer. We do condemn and reprobate all who assert, notice, th that the intelligent soul is mortal. That's interesting. Reprobate means you are rejected by God for believing what you believe because you reject what he teaches. That's what they're guilty of themselves. And this is in the era, of course, of Martin Luther, whom I am very happy to quote. It's amazing. Luther uh, cited the Pope's immortality declaration as amongst, notice, notice, he had a way with his words, those monstrous opinions to be found in the Roman dunghill of the Cretals. That's nice. I must remember this. That's putting you on the wrong side of another person, isn't it? And there's the reference, of course. I want you to know something. This man made a study, Thomas Kerr, on the uh, teachings of, of, uh, of Luther. Quoting Luther, we should learn to view our death in the right light. We agree with that. Not become alarmed on account of it. We should never. Uh, as unbelief does. Because in Christ, it is indeed not death, but it is what? A fine, sweet, and brief sleep. He almost makes it look like attractive, doesn't he? <laughs> Resting sweetly and gently for a moment on a sofa. Look at the language. Until the time, until the time, uh, he shall awaken us 
together with all his dear children. So a common general resurrection is proposed. To his eternal glory and joy. Hence we shall censure ourselves, he says, that we were surprised or alarmed as such asleep in the hour of death and suddenly come alive out of the grave. Wow! Hey, why don't you hear that today in a Lutheran church? I'd like to know. The man taught this. And from decomposition. That is what he believed. That is what we believe. And entirely well, the way he describes it, the resurrection, fresh, with a pure, he says, and with a clear, glorified life, meet our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ in the clouds. Hey, he should have been a Seventh-day Adventist. I want to talk to that man when I see him. Why didn't he join? Well, we weren't around yet. Scripture everywhere affords such consolation which speaks of the death of the saints, note this, uh, as if they fell asleep. And we're so familiar with that, awaiting the resurrection. Uh, and so together with the saints who preceded them in death. That is beautiful. You know Tyndale, you've, you've heard of William Tyndale. He was one of the major reformers there in England in the 16th century, early part. He was, obviously, he was executed in 1536, uh, burned. Sir Thomas More was, a, uh, was a, a champion for the Roman Catholic Church, an apologist for their beliefs. This is what Tyndale said to him. And you, and it's a bit of an old-fashioned language, but you get the jest. And you, in putting them, that's the deceased, those departed, in heaven, hell and purgatory, the three possibilities, you see, Destroy the argument, I love this, wherewith Christ and Paul prove the resurrection. Oh, wow. And again, if the souls be in heaven, and he says this, tell me why they be not as good a case as the angels be. In other words, they're as well off as the angels are. What is the point of a resurrection? Fair enough. I like this one. And I marvel that Paul had not comforted the Thessalonians with their doctrine. You know, that Paul was, uh, you know, consoling them, saying that there will be a resurrection and they will rise. Well, if they're already in heaven, couldn't that be more beautiful? That would help the, the ones that are left behind. And again, and again, after your doctrine, show me what cause there should be of the resurrection. What is the point, he says. Desire of Ages. Had Christ been in the room with, you know, where Lazarus was laying sick, she said, Lazarus would not have died. We know that he couldn't have. For Satan would have had no power over him, not in Jesus' presence. Death could not have aimed his dart at Lazarus in the presence of the life giver. Therefore, Christ remained away. He did not rush to go back with the messenger. Desire of ages seems to indicate when the messenger got back, Lazarus was still alive but died shortly after. If Jesus would have hurried to the home of Lazarus, he could have raised him from the sickbed. You understand? But somehow Jesus 
had a different, a different thing in mind. He suffered the enemy to exercise his power that he might drive him back, and I like this, as a conquered foe. This is so short, only a matter of weeks before his ordeal, before the crucifixion. Back to the story. So when Jesus came, he found that he, that is Lazarus, already had been in the tomb four days. Now, inclusive reckoning, part of a day becomes a day. Very important. Normally the same day of, you know, they die, they get buried in that climate, subtropics. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, but two miles away. That's important. It, you know, this is the... This is the Passover. You gotta, when you study your Bible, try to get the scene. Uh, the event is just before the Passover, right? And so what happens, you get all the pilgrims from all over the place, and they come, often most of them are on the other side to avoid uh, Samaria. They come on the, down to Judea, uh, on the other side of the, uh, of the River Jordan, and they cross at Jericho. And when you go from Jericho to Jerusalem, you got to come past Bethany. And so there are a lot of people around at this time. There are a lot of people around. This is important. And so many of the Jews had joined the women around uh, Mary and, uh, and, and Martha to comfort them concerning, of course, the loss of their brother. Now, it's interesting. We have a lot of witnesses here. And I stress this because in the miracles that Jesus performed, I have never found a document of antiquity that would go against the recorded miracles as if they did not happen. Nobody did. Flavius Josephus, first century AD, second half historian, never once denied the miracles of Christ. Never once. Even some of the Roman historians acknowledge that he did marvelous things, wonderful things. Tacitus, Pliny the Younger. There are examples there. So and many of the Jews had joined the women. Now, so there's a, quite a scene. There's quite a crowd. Jesus does not go straight to the house. He stays behind. He advises Martha. As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she leaves the house and she goes and meets him. And there is this most fascinating dialogue. Now, you really need to see this. But Mary was sitting in the house. She was still in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, she says, my brother would not have died. But even now, whatever you ask of God, she has that faith, God will give you. Does she believe at this point, that Lazarus will come back to life. Hail to your reply. I heard a yes somewhere. I don't think she did. I think she wanted to. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, I love this. I love this. Here, here we have it. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again. I know he will rise again when? In the resurrection. When? Oh, yes, love it. In the last day. Exactly what we believe. She was an SDA for sure. For sure. And Jesus said to her, I am, one of the great I am's of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. She shall live. Beautiful. That's the guarantee you have to believe in right here and now, this very morning. Believe it. And whoever lives and believes in me shall what? Even though you die, you shall not die. That's not a contradiction of terms. Basically what Jesus is saying, death will not hold you. It can't. It can't. Do you believe me, he says. And she said, she makes her confession there. Yes, Lord, I, I believe you are the Christ. That's the anointed, the Messiah. You, I believe you are the son of God who's come into this world or was to come into this world. She believes in him being the Messiah and the being a son of God. The divinity of Christ, and I love this statement, is the believer's assurance of eternal life, desire of ages. Back to Martha. She didn't even know about the cross yet. She didn't know. Last thing she would expect hadn't happened yet. It hadn't had, he hadn't died yet. She didn't know about his Jesus resurrection either. Because that hadn't happened yet either. But I have to give credit to the woman. She believed everything that had been revealed, that had been disclosed to her up at that point. The resurrection of life in the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter. I love this. This is the will of the Father who sent me. You should know this text. You really should know. This is about the state of the dead. Uh, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but I should what? Raise it up. When? When? Last day, when he comes again. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son of God and believes in him may have everlasting life. And what? I will raise him or her. <coughs> okay, two more. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him, her up at the last day. Uh, if ever you doubt your doctrine, he's number four. Well, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him, I will raise her up at the last day. Day. And then you look at the statement at, at the 14th chapter, the 14th chapter, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me, uh, in my father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and I go to prepare a place for you, and I will never understand how for decades I did read over this text and still had the wrong idea about the state of the dead. When I discovered this again, I almost became angry what they taught me, if it weren't for the fact that my parents, sincere Christians, would only teach me what they understood and the light they had. I, I did mention this text to, the, uh, to the, the pastor of the church I used to belong to. He was going to get back to me on this one. <laughs> 35 years ago plus. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will what? Second coming, right? Okay, second coming and receive you what? So in other words, when does he receive you, me, anybody has passed? When will he receive them? How simple. How easy it is. How easy it is. 
that word, I am very easy. Well, he's coming back, so he's in heaven, coming down here, uh, that you will be there also, so we go to heaven. That's another very straightforward. And behold, I come quickly, he says, and my reward is... So there must have been a decision-making process, and we know that as the great investigative judgment before he comes, because he brings his reward with him. We have the correct doctrine. And give to everyone according to his word. Bringing someone back from the dead was not new. But, you know, there are skeptics. The daughter of Jairus. Ah, she just fainted. She just fainted. Ah. What about the son of the widow of nines? Oh, he was just not well. He just lied down and they thought he was dead. They died. This is on the way to the grave. Same day, most likely. No time for decomposition. And they were brought back to life. Marvelous. Good. But Lazarus was a different ball game altogether. He had been dead for four days. There is no way. You can Google and find out the processes that find place of decomposition after death. And it's a quite a gory story, and I'm not going to go through all the details. But the body loses completely and utterly the capacity to function. You understand? Let me put it in those terms. Nice and clinical. And so here it is. We return to the story. And when she had said these things, she went her way, secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, saying, the teacher has come, is calling for you. And as soon as she heard Mary, she arose quickly, came to him, notice, uh, now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but he was in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were with her, with Mary, in the house, plenty of them, mourning and comforting her, comforting her. When they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her. They became witnesses to this miraculous occurrence. That is besides, most likely, the people that were passing from Jericho, past Bethany, going on their way to Jerusalem. She is going to the tomb, they thought, to weep, and that is understandable. But then Mary came, and when Jesus, where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell down at his feet, and she said to him, Lord, again, if you had been here, if oh, we believe God can do certain things for us, but do we believe he can do everything for us? Is the question. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, this becomes important. And the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. The Greek word really indicates a cause of inward commotion. So here we have God in humanity, God in humanity, and he has a profound emotion. And the emotion is not for himself. He knows what he's going to do. He knows. But he looks at her weeping. He looks at the pain that people suffer. And that is moving him. And he said, where have you laid him? He's going to raise him from the dead. But he doesn't even know where he's buried. He has to ask. Tells you a lot. Jesus was informed about what he needed to know, but not always everything. 
Where have you laid him? So they, he has to be pointed to the gravesides. And then they said to him, Lord, come and see. So they took him there. And then the shortest verse, verse 35, in the whole of the Bible, two words. Jesus wept. Now, if Jesus is God, God is crying. Why? For you. For you. For me. If ever, whatever you suffer and will suffer before he returns, can you accept the fact that he suffers with you? Because this is where the divine and the humanity absolutely meet. And then the Jew said, oh, he must have loved him. And, but divinity, and this statement comes again from the inspired pen of Ellen G. White, divinity suffered through humanity. God is never, never indifferent. Never, never, never. If you have seen me, Jesus said to Philip, you have seen the Father. If the Father would have been in the place of Jesus, you would have had exactly the same scene. That's the point. We are so busy with our feelings and emotions, and that's understandable. That's understandable. Me too. But really, really, when it comes to the crunch, how often do we think about God's emotions? We don't do a lot of that, do we? Because we believe that God is somehow immune, aloof. That's not true. If you read the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, that is not true. And some of them said... Could not this man, notice, who opened the eyes of the blind, particularly the one that was blind from birth, raised him. Well, then Jesus, again groaning in himself, and, and it gets a stronger word here, uh, and, and, and it really means he's really emotionally involved here. Uh, he came to the tomb, and it was a cave. You understand the setting, the cave. Uh, because Jesus was buried in one of those. It's a space in the rock, and there's a round stone that fits exactly for the opening. And a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, he's going to bring him back to life, right? On a scale of difficulty, couldn't he get an angel to do that? He's getting humanity to do that. I think one of the big stories, one of the, the important points of this story is that Jesus involves humanity where he can involve humanity. Show him where it is, one. Then remove the stone, you do it, you're human, you can do that. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, she objected, and you understand that. She said she didn't want the no desecration of the body per se, but she felt by this time there is a stance and that, that would have been right in normal circumstances. He has been dead four days, inclusive reckoning. And then Jesus said to her, he reminds her, he said, did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? You see, we got to believe in that, that we will see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from that place where the dead man was lying. And as Jesus lifted up his eyes, and then he had a prayer, and I love this prayer, and it's very purposefully and very intent, and it has, and it has, uh, a meaning for us here today. Father, he connected himself with his father. You see, they believed he could do remarkable things. They believed he could do miracles. What they didn't believe is that he came from God. 
that somehow Satan inspired or enabled him. That is what they accused him of, that he had a demon, etc. Now he's addressing his heavenly father. You have heard me, and I know that you always, you always hear me. He prayed audibly. There's power in praying audibly, by the way. He prayed audibly to his father, and all those that were standing around him could hear that he was dressing, addressing his heavenly father, and clearly proved his connection and his kinship to him, that they, they, that they may believe that you sent me. That was the important part. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. And that reminds me of the trumpet of God and the angel himself that, that, that will call people out of the grave. The voice that called into creation everything that there is. He cried with a loud voice. We get a name and we get a verb in the imperative. Lazarus, come out. And he does. What a moment that would have been, wouldn't it? Can you imagine being there? And he who had died came out bound and, and he, can you imagine how he struggled to get out of that? He had to get up from where he was lying down and then he shoveled because they had these uh, this, uh, wraparounds, if you like, all around him and his face was wrapped in a, in a cloth. He, he, he couldn't see. So Jesus said to them, uh, here you have it again, lose him and let him go. Now he could have gotten rid of that because he had the power, but he again involves humanity. You do your bit. I love that. Jesus involves us in the impossible that he is doing and has done. Still today. Still today. And let him go. And then they are plotting to kill Jesus. What's the response? It's not about evidence. Never doubt about your evidence for the existence of God, the Creator. Never doubt the, the evidence for salvation. Never doubt it. It's all there. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary, they believed, they believed. My, this was so good. Did you know, you read it in the next chapter, that the Pharisees not only wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus, the evidence of who Jesus was. Get it? That is how bad it was. But others, they went and told the Pharisees what had happened. So they have a council. What shall we do? These men work so many signs. If we let them alone like this, everybody's going to believe the truth. What a terrible thing. What a terrible thing. Everybody's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come, and there's the self-interest, take away our place in our nation. It's interesting, it's interesting, this one here, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, uh, it says here in the Bible, uh, he, he was priest that year. Uh, not for a year, that year, the year that Jesus was executed. Uh, he had a, he was, the, the high priest was appointed for life. But that changed under the Romans. Uh, Flavius Josephus says that since uh, the birth, since now the reign of Herod the Great, say about 4 or 5 BC till 70 AD, they had about 28 different high priests, which means it was a bargaining thing. It was a wheeling and dealing, it was. 
And that's how he got the job. And he had the job for 18 years, 18 AD to 36 AD. And, but for once he said something which he didn't mean, well, he did in a way, but not the way it came out. He said to them, you know nothing. That's nice. And you do not consider that it's an expedient for us that one man should die for the people. They wanted to kill John as well, but that one person, Jesus, should die for the people and, and, and that not the whole nation should perish. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And this he did not say on his own authority. It's amazing. Just like Balaam said things that were so true and magnificent. He suddenly is making a very good observation. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die, as he did, for the nation, and not for the nation only, because this is the wonderful thing. Also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now the comment on the other Lazarus, the fictitious one. We have a rich man. And we have poor Lazarus. You remember the story? Often used by Christians to explain the state of the dead, erroneously. In the story, in the account here, uh, God doesn't feature. He's not mentioned. Jesus doesn't feature. God has no place. You don't see him anywhere. You see Father Abram calling the shots. Abram is still in the grave. Then and today, awaiting the resurrection. But we have this rich man, and whenever we talk about a rich man, I'm always very comfortable because I'm not one of them. <laughs> well, this, this young man, I have a story here that I, I'd like to share with you. Somewhat on a lighter note, but it has a moral in it. That's why I'm telling you this. So there's this young man. Whatever he touches, it turns to gold. He's successive. Some people are like that. He's so successful. He is, everything turns into money. And he does this his whole life. And the few friends that he has, the few friends, tell him, stop doing what you're doing, working so hard, doing what you're doing. You can't take it with you. You know that, don't you? Yeah. The story has it that he found a way to do it. I mean, take it with him. He liquidated, he liquidated all his assets, everything, stocks, real estate, everything. Gold bars, gold bars, nice strong little trolley, put a boot cloth over it, he died. So he comes to the gate, the gate, the speeder there, and he comes and he has his trolley behind him. And he comes to the gate, and Peter checks his name against the list, and then he says, what's that there? He said, oh... He said, this is all gold. These are gold bars. Peter looks at that and he goes, more asphalt. You get the picture? Even if you could take your money with you, what are you going to buy? Huh? But of course, this had a meaning that was deeper because in this instance, the privilege to know the gospel message, to know about the true God, didn't share with poor Lazarus. That is really the moral of that story. But you remember there's a dialogue between the, uh, the rich man and Father Abram. And the rich man asked Father Abram to commission, uh, ultimately commission Lazarus to go back, to go back to planet Earth, to his five brothers, to his five, suddenly he thinks of other people, <laughs> to his five brothers, that they may not end up in the same place of torment that he finds himself. And this is the reply that Abram gave, well, in the story. 
But he said to him, Abram, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that is the Bible, it's a reference to the Bible, neither will they be persuaded if someone rose from the dead. Isn't that exactly what happened? That is exactly what happened. It's not about evidence. It is not about that. And so, there it is. The, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus gave a preview to the resurrection of Christ. The disciples should have believed. They should have helped him. Uh, because they had seen the resurrecting power of Christ. In the case of Lazarus, didn't Jesus say, I have power to lay it down his life, I have power to take it up again? He said that. The resurrection of Lazarus to us here this morning, the relevance is this. The resurrection of Lazarus gives a preview of our own resurrection. He can do it. He did it in the case of Lazarus. There is no, there is no difficulty in our, for our Lord. That, we, that would help us that we also will rise because we have seen the resurrecting power in the case of Lazarus. For the hour is coming in which all who are in his grave. Do you know sometimes I try to visualize. So it's like going to sleep. Does he call me by name? Maybe. But he calls me back to life. What will it be like? You ever think that? What will it be like to open your eyes? You're looking at the angel who's put up with you all of his life, <laughs> all of your life. Knows everything. It's been there all the time. Points to the east. And then you see him. I can dream of a resurrection. Because I will go there by the grace of God. I will be there. I must be there. I must see him come. I know he will come. I must see that heavenly host. I must hear the shouts of victory. Man, what a thing that will be. We have an incredible, an incredible future. Right before us. They will hear his voice. When divinity and humanity meets... I'd really want to be there. And my hope and my prayer is, so will you be. Wouldn't it be good? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the assurances that you give us. We thank you for the God that you are. We thank you for your promises. Lord, we're just sinful, imperfect humanity, but you love us so much. Help us to love you back the way we should and to express it the way we ought to. Oh Lord, we long for the day when Jesus returns. What a day that will be. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be strong. Keep us well, keep us safe. Near to your heart. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. This message was made available by the Watara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit waitarachurch.org.au.
This is What a Day That Will Be by Southern Raised. There is coming a day when no heartache shall come. No more clouds in the sky and no more tears will dim the eye. All is Listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. Psalm 7 is a meditation of David concerning the words of Cush. And the theme is praising God for deliverance. O Lord my God, I put my trust in you. 
Please save me from those who would torment me and deliver me from them, or they may tear me to pieces like a lion, leaving me in shreds when there was no one to protect me. O Lord, please let me know if I have done any of these things, if my hands are stained with sin, if I dealt evil to a man who was at peace with me, or if I have looted another's goods without any good reason. Then let these people chase me down and apprehend me. Yes, let them lay my life in the dust, and may the honour I once had be accounted for nothing. Arise, O Lord, when you are angry. Be aware of the fury of my enemies. Yes, awake, O Lord, and hand down your true justice, which you have made known. Let all the assembled people gather before you and reign over them from your throne. It is the Lord who shall judge the nations. And judge me too, O Lord, in harmony with your righteousness, according to my determination to serve you. May the sinful ways of the wicked come to an end, and may you confirm the just. For by your righteousness, people are tested in their heart and mind. My protection is the God of heaven, who cares for those who give their lives to you. God is truly just in all his dealings, and is infuriated with the wicked every day. If he does not overlook the sins of the people, he will sharpen the sword of his justice and will bend his bow to send punishment where it is due. He has the means of inflicting the utmost punishment when he uses the fiery arrows of war. Look, the wicked struggle in their sinfulness. They think of all kinds of iniquity with falsehood as their specialty. The wicked man has dug a pit in his wickedness, then falls into it, the very hellhole he has made. All the trouble he has caused shall return upon his head, and where he has hurt and bruised, he shall be made to suffer too. But I will praise the Lord. His righteousness brings forth a song of praise from my lips, a song to honour the Most High God. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.